My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Right now, the only pastor here, and it's uh, great to be with you guys this morning. But make no mistake, not everything is great. Um, We live in a world full of actual, very real bad things to fear. I think we can all agree on with that and move on and (laughs) kind of proceed with the sermon. But there are two fears, I think, that are, are more painful in many ways than the experience of actual bad things themselves when they happen to us. And that is, one, the, the purposelessness of bad things, right? When bad things happen, but they seem so purposeless, we fear that, right? I mean, that grips us. That's why we say immediately after something bad happens, why? Or why me? And, and that question that pours out from our hearts can come through tears or it can come while assaulting a keyboard, right? Why is this happening to me? And yet, we sense by experience that there's no one there who's going to answer. The other fear, it's often a worse fear than the actual bad thing, is when a bad thing ruins a once perfect plan. And so we often scramble for excuses, apologies, bribes. I'll do anything to make it up. To get me back on that track or give me some other punishment. We've said since we were kids, right? Remember, as a, my parents would give me a punishment, taking something so good, that good plan away. I'd say, no, no, anything else. And that was the worst feeling as a kid. We want people to fix that good thing now irrevocably, irrevocably broken. And yet we sense from experience that there's no one there to fix it. Except that there is. There is someone who answers and fixes, who promises purpose and incorporates the bad, even the very worst, into a good plan. And that person is God. So I want you to bring along this morning your why is this happening to me's and your devastation that you feel at a good plan ruined as I teach on this second of three anchoring truths that are designed to free us from fear to faith. And that this morning is that our bad things will turn out for good. Last week we looked at our good things can never be taken away. And the very best thing, the presence of God Himself, we learned. Next week, we're going to learn about the best is yet to come and how that anchoring truth will free us from fear. But this week, it is our bad things will turn out for good. So turn with me, if you would, to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. That's going to be on page 809 if you want to use one of the Bibles we provided in these chair back pockets or the end of the aisles. I always feel like a flight attendant doing this. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, those are yours to keep. We would love for you to have that page 809 on those Bibles. I want to give you some context for uh, these verses we're going to read, verses 28 through 30. Um, the beginning of this chapter in Romans the Apostle Paul has been explaining that because Jesus died the death we deserve and rose from the dead into heaven, that we might one day follow Him there. 
those who trust in him never, ever, ever have to fear condemnation from God. Never, ever have to fear eternal suffering, though it's justly deserved for our rebellion towards him. Which is great news. And now, now Paul, though, he's a logical dude. Intensely logical. And he, so he goes on to address, why is it then that we still experience bits of suffering, little pieces of suffering in this world, if Jesus has saved us from eternal suffering? And so he uses three lines of logic to explain this in Romans 8. An upward logic, he says, compared though to the eternal life ahead, the suffering we experience now is like nothing on the scales. It weighs very little. He uses a downward logic that God himself has come down in the Holy Spirit to be with us in that suffering, even groan with us with words that we can't express in our suffering. That's good news as well. But he also uses this horizontal logic, which is there is a plan and purpose for suffering and bad things in this life. And so we read about that in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. So read that with me, if you would. This is God's word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified. He also glorified. Each uh, verse contains a truth about God that when we start to kind of get and live out of, we are freed from fear, from heart-gripping, paralyzing fear to faith. So in verse 28, we're going to learn that God has a good plan for your bad things, Verse 29, God has a specific purpose for you that no bad thing can stop. In verse 30, we'll learn that he completes every project he begins. All right, so first, verse 28, God has a good plan for your bad things. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, which includes good things and bad things. And it's good that he includes good things because it means that our good things, the good things we do or that are done to us, matter in this life. They have significance. But it's even better news that he incorporates bad things into his good plan. Bad things are two types of bad things, really. There are bad things that happen to us. And there are bad things that come from us. All right, and from the bad things that come from us, the Bible calls this a sin. All right, it's the big no in our hearts to say, I want to do life my way, not your way, Lord. Jesus put it this way. He said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The life lives. Jesus said that the 
good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, but the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Like Jesus, Paul doesn't bother to wax philosophical on the origin of bad things, rather on the fact that God will receive, even turn and transform the bad into something beautiful and glorious and worthwhile. Earlier, or even before the service, you may have noticed uh, an image of an oil painting up on the screen behind me. This oil painting is Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jotte. I tried to do my best French there. La Grande Jotte, composed in 1885 by Georges Pierre Seurat. Um, and if it looks especially familiar, it's because you have visited the awesome Chicago Art Institute where it hangs. Or, or, or you saw the classic 1986 John Hughes film, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, um, where it's viewed and gawked at by Ferris Bueller's best friend Cameron as he contemplates his life. A wonderful movie. But you're actually looking at something that's not the original Surratt painting. In many ways, it's actually more of a masterpiece. It's not even an oil painting that you're looking at here behind me. In fact, if you zoom in, Go ahead and zoom in once. And again, go ahead and zoom in. And one more time. If you start to notice something different, if you don't yet, go ahead and zoom in again. And again. And you start to begin to notice a shape that this painting is composed of. Smaller pieces. This work is actually the work of a modern artist, Chris Jordan, who used 400,000 soda and water bottle caps. Each of them he found, and then he arranged in this beautiful work. In other words, he took trash, left, forgot about, thought of as refuge, to create a masterpiece. And that's exactly what God does with our lives. He takes these little pieces we consider trash, what really is trash, the sin of our life. And he arranges it into something grand and glorious and beautiful. And that's such an important truth. No one actually experienced this truth of taking the bad and making something beautiful of it, like the Apostle Paul, whose, whose Christian autobiography begins with suffering. Before we are told that this man, Paul, has even trusted Jesus, we're informed that God has a good plan for him, which will not only include, but will require bad things. God says of Paul that he is going to be my chosen instrument to carry forth my name. For I will show him, this is in Acts chapter 9, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So before we even hear, now, yes, Paul has trusted Jesus, the angels are celebrating, we hear, I've chosen this man to bring forth my name, but the way I'm going to bring it about is suffering, bad things. The Apostle Paul can come across sometimes when you read him, it's almost like professorial, cold, bookish, like he's a teacher of some master's course at a university or something like that. 
But when he says, for those who love God, all things work together with good, for him it was intensely personal. Every time the door slammed shut in a prison cell, every whiplash that struck his back like the teeth of some ungodly animal, every time a ship ran aground and he thought, man, again, every rumor that reached his ears that those whom he led to Christ now think of him inferior to some new teacher that's come and taught and impressed and wowed the congregation. Oh yeah, he thought to himself, God, you will work these things together for some masterpiece, for something beautiful. He also had to believe this truth because of the suffering that he inflicted before he encountered the risen Christ. Paul was a self-proclaimed persecutor of the church. Paul not only threw Christians into prison, but he sanctioned many of their murders. You don't think some days while he was alone in prison or out on some ship traveling, he wondered about their families left behind or the churches in which they once served or the jobs they left vacated? No doubt he did with a lump in his throat and a pit in his stomach. He thought about that and he had to believe somehow God You will work even those things, those evil things that I did that came from my heart and through my actions, somehow you will work these for good. He had to believe it. Where did he get such counterintuitive confidence in the face of evil, including his own evil? The cross of Jesus Christ. The suffering of our Lord Jesus. The supreme example of suffering and our salvation. Every powerful force at the cross of Christ conspired to murderous evil. Satan, who thinks he's won when he's entered Judas. The systematic evil of long-standing institutions like the Roman government who protect power at all costs. We have to hold on to it. We have to keep it. The evil of popular opinion which, which foments with that mob mentality of it must be true He must be worthy of death. Even religious leaders, paragons of morality and ethical behavior, they're the very ones who started the plan to premeditate and murder Jesus of Nazareth. Yet against all odds, the Father's plan, the cross, and our salvation incorporated the greatest ever evil to produce the greatest ever good. Romans 8.28 is probably the most referenced verse in the Bible. And I say referenced on purpose, not necessarily quoted, because there are two very common scenarios in which you'll hear this verse referenced. At times, when people end a, a sob story, something difficult in their life, they'll say, but there's a reason for everything, right? And a lot of times, well-meaning Christians, even us, will respond, oh yeah, actually, that's in the Bible. That's what God says. There's a reason for everything. Or people get the verse right, but the, we usually quote only part of it, which makes sense. You can't always say a full verse in front of people. You don't want to seem like you're holier than thou. So people say, hey, God works all things for good. Missing two-thirds of what Paul actually says in this verse 
And it's really helpful when we have opportunity to look at a familiar verse because it, it's an opportunity to look at it afresh, to note something that we previously missed. For instance, the other two-thirds, that this promise is only intended for some. This promise that God works all things together for good is only intended for some. For those who love God, for those called according to His purpose. Do you notice that? It's at the beginning and at the end of this very good promise. And some of you, when you hear that it's intended for those who love God, you need not, don't freak out. Some of you are going to read that and think, those who love God, I wonder if I, I do, do I really love God? Do I love Him enough? How genuine is my love? Sometimes it's fickle. This is used elsewhere by Paul, 1 Corinthians 2.9, 1 Corinthians 8.3, Ephesians 6.24, just to describe people who are Christians. It's not a qualification of the promise as if that God only works out bad things for good for those who've loved God enough. That promise is only for those whom God has called to Himself through Jesus Christ. And that might feel exclusive for you. Does that feel exclusive? That God is excluding people? Maybe you personally feel excluded by it. You might. And, and, and friends, I've been there. I've felt excluded. We have first-time visitors every Sunday to sunrise, and we're so grateful you're here. And in my experience, uh, people come to church, and especially to sunrise, because they're looking for good news for their bad things. And the good news is, you are here. And if you are listening, friends, God is calling you. He's calling you. He wants to do good with the bad that you've lugged in here. Maybe you've lugged it in here like a big old suitcase, just dragged it in, and you're tired, and you're beat up and bedraggled. And He wants to do good with that. But you must respond to the call. Jesus wants to take your bad and give you good. He wants to take your worst, your sin, the big no in your heart that you can't escape from, that separates you from God, and He wants to give you His rightness with God. Jesus is right standing with God. He wants to give you that. He's willing to exchange it if you would just believe and put your faith in Him. Free exchange. Another thing we might miss out on when reading verse 28 is verse 29. <laughs> but they go together. In verse 29, we, read, we learn that God has for you a specific purpose that no bad thing can stop. Let's read that again. For those whom he foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. If you lose a job, a relationship, an opportunity, a dream, maybe you lose the respect of someone you love and it's gone, we often hear, hey, you know what? When God closes one door, He opens another. Or, you know, God must have something better for you you just don't know about yet. And oftentimes that's true. And God's nature is supercharged, infused with goodness. He longs to be gracious, We are told in His Word over and over again, especially in the Old Testament, He abounds with loving kindness. So often it abounds in the form of opening a door 
where one shuts. And no doubt many of you have stories about this. One door closes that if it had remained open, you wouldn't have got that next door, which was so much better. But that is not what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. The good purpose of bad things that Paul speaks of is far more specific and grand. Far bigger. Which is actually good news. The specific purpose in enduring bad things is conformity to the image of Christ. He wants us to become and look more like Jesus. Does this mean that your purpose in life is to look more and more like a 30-year-old Palestinian man with a heavy beard? Uh, No, thankfully not. (laughs) Thankfully not. For many of you, that would be a mistake. All right? Even some of you guys, you know you shouldn't be trying to grow beards. It's okay. That's how God designed you. For me, it's just like two days of forgetting to shave. And the heavy beard, I look like a Palestinian man almost right away. I'm just blessed with that kind of fruitfulness in my face. But... But, but he really means, what he means in becoming more like Jesus, he's talking here about your character. That as you trust Christ, and God changes you inwardly, you outwardly bear the same kind of fruit that was evidenced in Jesus' life. Your life begins to resemble the king more and more. But the thing is, we learn here that God uses bad things to initiate this transformation, to continue sometimes this transformation. He uses pain to get our attention, to turn us from indulging and putting things ahead of God. Suffering he uses to help us depend on him more, to grow further acquainted with the grief of our Savior and comforted by him. He even takes our sin to produce in us godly humility. Remember, man, I do not have this together. I thought I had it together but I actually don't. So he uses sin to remind us of our need for a rescuer. Because sometimes we think we don't need him. And this is where oftentimes in these bad things, the father plays the father. Right? Some of you have great dads, but a lot of times your dad's your friend. I watched a daughter before the service call her dad bro. And that was awesome. Sometimes the father's got to play the father. That means he chooses to use some bad things that we would never choose ourselves. We would never have the strength, the courage to choose ourselves. I once had an opportunity to hear a writer and philosopher, Nicholas Wolterstorff, speak. Wolterstorff lost his 25-year-old son in a mountaineering accident. and uh, He can speak from an experience that, praise God, that I cannot. Weeks after he had lost his son, uh, he wrote that he had been deeply changed by this tragedy, this experience, uh, and changed for the better. He he wrote that it made him more humble, it made him more trusting of God and his character, it made him more Christ-like. But Walter Storff also uh, wrote, uh, honestly, for those who grieve like he had to grieve in this loss. When he cried, without a moment's hesitation, I would exchange all of those good changes to have Eric back. You see, friends, we would not have the strength to choose this path 
even if we knew it was for our good, that path would be too terrible for us to say yes to. God is a wise parent. He chooses for us what we never could. He gives to us what we need, not what we think we want. Which often includes bad things. For me, that kind of moment was less severe, but it was the summer of uh, 1999, the year of 1999. That summer, I was uh, electrocuted. Uh, I experienced severe dehydration with no water in sight. I caught a third-world stomach virus miles and vehicle-less from the closest hospital, Uh, I discipled a young man who didn't speak English. I sat uh, on a three-hour bus ride next to a thirsty and irritable uh, Islamic extremist and walked through an anti-American protest wearing uh, shorts as an American with a basketball in my hand. That was a difficult summer filled with uh, many fears and bad things. I wouldn't have chosen it personally, but all, all the money, all the gold, all the Bitcoin in the world would not have traded that experience. I don't recall some specific sort of neato moment where God closed one door and opened another through pain. I just know that that began the summer where I really grew up as a Christian. Where God used difficulty and pain to really make me more like Jesus. Growing pains, really. It's also good news that there's no bad thing to you or from you that can thwart his purpose. None of these bad things that you either experience, but also no bad thing that you do can thwart his purpose. We are predestined to look like Jesus, we're told here. Predestined for those who trust Christ. That's a scary word on the surface for some of you, predestined. When it comes to such a grand purpose, the privilege of representing Jesus for our lives to look more and more like His so the world can look at us and see the Savior, that is a destiny I will take any day. Now, I've done plenty in my life to try to convince God, hey, go look for some better material you know, for your representative for Christ. You can use some better material than me. But God still says, no, no, I have a purpose. No bad thing that comes out of you, I will stop it. Make you more like Jesus. And that's good news. The third truth we learn here is that God completes every project he begins. We read that in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I wish I had time to get into each one of these glorious and rich terms here. Calling, justification, glorification. We don't have time. Let me just point out one because it's the most surprising at its inclusion, and that's glorified. It's most surprising because on the surface, being glorified with Jesus is always something that happens later than now, right? At this moment, you're here. I can see you in the flesh. Let me tell you, you are beautiful people, but you hope to be more beautiful in heaven, right? The perfect, all that imperfection, everything we experience, all the scars we take on, But here it says that we are glorified. Paul uses what's known as the aorist tense. It refers to an action that has occurred in the past. So we have been called by God. We have been made just with God, legally made right with him, as in a court of law. We've also been glorified. What's happening here is Paul is so confident of God's character and inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's Paul's way of saying 
with God, consider it done. Consider it like it's already done. That's how secure your being eventually completely like Jesus in all glory is now. Philippians 1.6, Paul puts it this way, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ when he returns to make all those who trust in him exactly like him. For we shall see him as he is, the Bible says. So whenever you think he's done with you because of your failings, when you're frustrated that your faith has wavered through bad things instead of your faith flourishing, or that the bad things have gotten so bad you've wondered if he stopped the work completely on you, what you consider trash, he still receives and uses to build his masterpiece, which is Christ in you. Let's pray. Father, we are just unspeakably grateful that you have a good plan for our bad things. We are thankful that you have a specific purpose that no bad thing in our lives can stop. And we're grateful that you complete every project you begin as the master artist. Many of us, um, Father, have retreated um, into a, a, a cautious Christian life because we fear. We fear the bad things that might happen and the plan that might be ruined because of the bad things that might happen to us or things that we do. But these truths give us the freedom to fail when we take faith risks. So God, empower us to take them. Help us to take them anyway because we know that even if we fail, you'll use it for good. And Father, may the experience of bad things be an occasion for us to adjust our trust. We're so prone to trust circumstances, trust good things, trust blessing, that that's a sign that God is with us, that we're obeying Him. But bad things happen, Lord, a lot of times to move us from trusting circumstances, trusting ourselves to fix them, to control them, to trusting You. That the world may look at our lives and say, that's different. That is unusual. There is a person who is experiencing affliction and difficulty. Yet they're full of joy. Because they trust that God is doing a greater work. May that be true of us in Jesus' name. Amen.